Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Connection, where industry expert Doug Plucknett interviews global leaders from the maintenance and reliability industry. Each week, new leaders will join us with insights and tips to help you grow in your career, and they'll share a good story or two while they're at it as well. The Leadership Connection is produced by the industry's leading networking and learning community, Mobius Connect. Doug, over to you. Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time of day it might be that you're tuning into this podcast. Uh, on the Leadership Connection. Today, I have a very special guest, somebody I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time. It's uh, Thomas Bohm. Thomas, how are you doing today? Pretty good. <clears throat> it was a busy day. And he, uh, Tom, you normally go by just straight Tom, right? Yeah, Tom. Yeah. Very good. All right. So let me tell uh, my audience a little bit about uh, how we know one another. Uh, I met Tom through LinkedIn. And uh, that was probably at least five years ago. I'm yeah, I would say around 2015, probably. Right. So Tom is a, a circular knitting machine mechanic for uh, Stanfields up in, uh, let me try the name of this town, Truro, Nova Scotia, Canada. Is that correct? Did I get that right, Tom? You got it pretty good. Truro. All right. So, uh, I have to say that Tom has one of the most unique profiles on LinkedIn. When you look it up, it says things like uh, he's a chicken whisperer and uh, uh, circular knitting machine mechanic. Uh, and it, you don't see anything about uh, Tom being a great leader. And, and uh, he's, in fact, when I first said, I'd like to have you on this podcast, he said, Doug, I don't think I'm a leader. Uh, and uh, I would certainly disagree with that. But anyway, let me get on with this introduction. And then you'll actually get to hear Tom talk. Uh, Tom's profile is not unique, but uh, not only unique, but he has what I think is the most thought-provoking account on LinkedIn. Uh, his posts and articles that he writes are, are certainly thought-provoking. Uh, I would say I probably communicated with him more than I have anybody on LinkedIn in, over the past several years. Um, as I said, I've been corresponding with him about five years now, and I have to say that I thoroughly enjoy the variety of topics that he covers as well. Uh, well, most of his writings are about the knitting machines and his work and uh, his life as a knitting machine mechanic, the enthusiasm and, enthusiasm and love that he has for uh, his trade is quite infectious. Uh, it's quite clear that he's not only has a knack for maintaining these assets, but he has a love for the industry he works in. Uh, and you'll see that by the post that he has about the history of uh, Stanfields and the knitting industry and uh, the U.S. and Canada and around the world. Uh, if you want to know anything about the history of the company he works for, um, I would encourage you to, to connect with Tom on LinkedIn. Uh, some of the things that he's also written about, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about these things, uh, his life's growing up as a son of a minister. so. Uh, and the work ethic that his father instilled in him growing up, uh, his life as a teacher in Japan, his family and the importance of family. It's quite clear that uh, his his family growing up and the family that he has made are quite important to Tom. And I, I think that's really a, a, a fantastic trait in people. Uh, he will often write about his, his walk with his dog. He used to go running with him, and he's told me today that his dog is aged a bit, so the runs aren't uh, quite so good for him. Maybe, maybe gotten too fat more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he talks about people who are up and coming in the, in, his, in, 
knitting industry and how they got started. And those are some of the articles that I find uh, absolutely incredible. Um, he posted one a while back about a young lady that started her own company. And uh, um, it just was intriguing to read about. And then another guy that uh, is writing quite a bit, investing in, in the knitting industry in the, in the U.S., um, it's really a business that uh, we would all like to see come back. You know, when you look at the labels on our clothes that we get, and they always come from overseas, uh, this used to be have such a strong history in uh, North America. It would be fantastic to see that come back. So going on about his posts, um, he also talks about how listening, learning, and patience are important when it comes to performing the precision type of work that he does. Um, and lastly, the effects of dangling a carrot can have on your best employees. Uh, that was uh, one of the posts that he and I went back and forth on several times. Um, I have to tell you, Tom reminds me of my first 10 years working as a tradesperson and the struggle of becoming a leader in, in the industry. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, you really have to sort through. And I think we'll talk about some of those things today. Tom, how are you doing? I'm sorry about the long introduction, but I, I think you're you're certainly a person that uh, is is worth that type of discussion. I'm I'm doing fine, no problem with the with the introduction. <laughs> so, as I've said, um, you know, when I first mentioned this to you, you said, "Hey, I, I don't really think I'm a leader. I don't know that I'd be a great person on this." But I look at your post and I go, "Wow, this is a guy that I think every company." that's in your business would love to have a Tom work for somebody that's really engaged in how these machines work and what it takes to keep them running. And uh, tell me a bit about what you do. Well, I, I, I worked as a knitter for 10 years. And then as the older fellows retired, I took over first, I took over the one, one man's alley. Then I took over the next two people that retired's alley. Now it's to the point where, well, there's me and two other guys and we look after the room basically and run the machines. Now you run the machines and you look after the machines both at the same time. So sometimes right. that works, sometimes it doesn't work, but you have to make it work one way or the other. So, but my average day is I'll go in and I'll check if there's any changeovers for machines to put different styles of fabric on. I'll get them done first if there was any, and then I'd start whatever machines up that I, there's certain machines that are a little bit take more care than the other ones that I just prefer to run myself anyways. And so if they've got orders on them, I always run them myself. It's easy. So not only are you a mechanic, you're, you're, you operate them as well, huh? I operate them as well. Yeah. And I mean, right. it, as long as I, if, if I have to take a machine apart, I don't want to operate a machine, but right. on an average day when there's nothing particularly going on, I, I'm more than happy to run a machine or run a few machines because I hate, I don't mind being at work when I've got things to do. I hate nothing more than being at work if I've got nothing to do. <laughs> there you go. So the Maytag repairman would not fit you. Huh? That wouldn't fit me. There like you go. Home. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the things, as I say, you remind me of myself. Uh, when I worked at Kodak, there was, we had day shift guys and uh, the sh three shift guys. And the older fellas typically took that shift work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they'd always say they hated days because there was so much going on during the day shift, right? And then at night, you'd get called in if they, you know, had a problem going on and, and it'd be like, okay, so what are you guys doing? Why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> 
waiting on 20 minutes from now, there's even a product change and we got to help them with the product change. And we, you know, we can't be doing both. And oh, okay. So, and they'd say, there's a lot of sitting around on the, on the shift work. I'd be like, I don't think I ever want to do that too much. So, um, a bit about your life, uh, in a, correct me if I'm wrong. You worked in Japan as a teacher for some time, correct? Yeah. So I moved there when I just turned 20 and we lived there for 10 years and I worked at the same company, well, for nine years of my 10 years there. So. All right. And, and what were you teaching? English, English. I taught English and I was the manager of foreign staff for the last four years there. So okay. I had to find the new teachers and do the interviews. And All right. It was, it was interesting. So when you say we live there, who is with you? Uh, my wife and then my son was born in 96. So we'd been there for a few years by the time we were married in 92. So we lived there for four years when my son was born. So. All right. Very good. And then did you move from there to, to Canada? Yeah, we moved from there to Nova Scotia. We brought a cat and a dog with us and we all moved to be near my parents here. So, all right. Nova Scotia was, was not the original plan. We had been planning on moving to Ontario because at the time right. my father was a minister in a church in Northern Ontario. And that was sort of what we were looking forward to. But then in the meantime, dad moved to Nova Scotia. So right. we either would have to live near them or travel back and forth every other year to see each other's parents. So we decided to move to Nova Scotia. All right. <laughs> so you, you were born in the U S correct. I was born in Michigan. Yeah. All right. That's what I, I thought. Remember your dad was uh was a preacher. You talk about him creating the sermon and things like that. So how in the world did you end up in the knitting industry? Tell me a bit about that. Well, when we moved here in 2001, I'd been a teacher in Japan for 10 years. I never had a degree. I, when I moved to Japan, they asked me to give, give them a name of a college in Canada. I gave them a name and they made up a degree for me. And I taught on that at the schools, at the schools there for the 10 years I was there. But when I moved here, of course, that does me no good getting a job in Canada because I had no real qualifications as a teacher. So I had to look for factory work. I worked at a little little supermarket near here when we first got here for two months for $6 an hour. <laughs> then I went to Stanfields one morning. I remember walking up thinking, well, this would be a cool place to work, this old building. And I walked in. They said, do you come back tomorrow at 8 o'clock? You can have an interview with our, well, the vice president at the time, Andrew Sears. And so I went back the next morning. I remember I was embarrassed because during the interview, I was so desperate to get a job. I could feel tears in the corner of my eyes during the interview. Not that I cried, but it was close to it, close to it. Yeah. And I remember he hired me on that day. I, I had the job. So it was piecework as a, as a knitter, they call it, or a machine operator. Sure. And that's uh, there's certain, uh, certainly some elation that goes with that. I, I can relate back to that too. Um, I could tell you, um, I asked my wife to marry me. I was, uh, it flunked out of school where we met, right. They threw me out and, uh, I was working for a friend of my brother's, uh, cutting wood, basically, you know, clearing, um, places for, uh, housing developments and expressways. And so running a chainsaw and, uh, you know, a bucket loader and stuff like that and not making much money. And, uh, <laughs> 
went and got a loan for the engagement ring and and uh telling my parents and my mom was like holy smokes you didn't even really have a job yet right and i said i just know it's the right thing to do you know and then when i went and got the the interview for kodak and it wasn't that i was hired that day you know i had to take a test for an apprenticeship and i just studied my tail off for it and I knew when I took it that I aced it, right? And so the day that they did call me and, and offered me the job, it was, uh, you know, I remember going down to see her afterwards and saying, hey, we're set for life. I mean, you're going to be a teacher. And she had gotten a job teaching. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a, a great thing to all of a sudden have that realization, okay, we're going to be okay, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I was feeling pretty desperate at the time because I look looking for work is a hard thing. It, I've yes, at, at that period, I always feel sorry for people who have to go look for work because it's it's very depressing. You put in so many applications and you have to be rejected so many times. So, so moving from teaching to operating a piece of equipment and then maintaining them, uh, the maintenance side of that operating is one thing. I, I mean, you certainly have to have some type of, uh, and I, I hate calling it common sense because it's more yeah. than that, right? You have to understand how, how things mesh and how things work. And if you don't do that, you struggle all day long. Yeah. Right? And I'm, I'm sure you've seen some examples of that. There's just some people that, yeah, man, right. Outside of riding a bike, they can't accomplish much more than that. Right? Yeah. You can usually so, tell in a short period of time. Yeah. And then to go from that to maintaining those pieces of equipment. And that's, I encourage people to look at your, what you post because you often post videos of it and you see all these moving parts, right? And how quickly they all mesh together. And if it's not perfect, and that thing is not going to run, it's going to bind up and you're going to have a mess, right? Real quick, right? So that transition, how did that happen? Well, going from knitter to knitting machine mechanic took slower, went slower because in all honesty, back in those days when it was piecework, the mechanics weren't real interested in assisting me because there was always a bit of rivalry because mechanics were on time. The piece workers were on piecework, and there was always a little bit of a fear that the piece worker might make more than the mechanic. So the mechanics sort of would like to try to see your machines down when possible. So at, at after maybe four or five years, it got to the point where Aside from setting up a machine to a new style, all the small repairs and all the small day-to-day -day maintenance I did myself because it was easier to do it myself than have to track someone down, ask them to do it for me and get some silly joke put to me for, <laughs> for asking. So by the time my boss actually approached me to be a mechanic, I already was maybe halfway trained for the basics. So, and I was, I had no mechanical background, but I've always had, since I was a little kid, I've always been good with anything mechanical. I've always liked it. Clocks, especially right. watches, have always fascinated me. So it was, it was a quick study and it was a good thing I was because I had two mechanics mainly who trained me and they were both, they're both good fellas, but they had their tricks up their sleeve. And the one was hoping to come back after he retired so I had to always play it, play up to their egos along with while I was sure. being training. So 
that's just called welcome to the apprenticeship. And that's just something that, that today, you know, some folks struggle with, uh, you know, I, I won't say I was from the generation that the, the, the journeyman made you carry his toolbox, but it was pretty close to that. Right. It wasn't uncommon to see a journeyman throw a wrench at, at, a, at an apprentice, right. If things weren't going right. Yeah. And, uh, so <laughs> things have changed quite a bit since then. We'd have trouble getting the machine going. And if he didn't want me to know how to fix it, he'd say, break time. So I'd yeah. go for break. I'd come back and the machine would be running perfectly, right? <laughs> Incredible <laughs> how that works out. Yeah. So um, looking at... Uh, the other thing I wanted to tell people is what does Stanfields make? It's also a pretty unique industry. I mean, originally it was an underwear factory. They really made yeah. the first big money making long underwear for the gold rush, the Klondike gold rush, right. where the big money was first made. And after that, it went into just mostly underwear, long underwear, T-shirts, women's underwear. So, and I get a charge out of the, in most cases, Tom refers to where he works as the crazy underwear plant uh, or crazy underwear factory. I can't remember which it is. Yeah. yeah. Crazy so, underwear factory. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how, how big is Sandfields? How many people are working there? Uh, it's went down a lot since I started there. I would say probably 200 now. That's probably an overestimate. Okay. And um, I'm always amazed at how much you know about the other businesses within your industry. Like that, you wrote a while back about a, uh, a young lady that started up on her own. Uh, that she actually came out of one plant and started her own plant. Yeah. And I, I, I thought, wow, that's really that takes courage in today's world, right? So, who is that person? And and, and fill me in a little bit. How did you end up knowing who she was and because I, I could tell you, I did see her response to what you wrote, and she was quite flattered about that. Connie, Connie Hoffa. So I met her here. I think she connected with me at some point and started commenting on my posts. And just like you, we started discussing things on the side of what's going on. And I, I'm always, I'm, I, I like asking people questions if, if there's something I want to know about something. So off and on, sure. we change messages. And then a, a few months ago, I decided it would be cool to spotlight different different companies and people that I have found interesting within the textile industry on on LinkedIn. So then Connie was one of the first ones I thought about. I never actually realized that she ran it with her husband till I did the research. So, did, about right. so it was the first time for me to hear her personal history too. <laughs> So that was interesting. Yeah. So oh, I don't want to get too much into um, what goes on at your site. I want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on leadership um, because I know you don't see yourself that way, but in terms of the response to the people of what you write on LinkedIn, it's quite clear that you are. Right, that there are other people in the industry that you work in that are reaching out and talking to you about things. Yeah. Right. And uh, that has to be one of those pieces that's encouraging. And I, I told you, you remind me of myself. And that was one of the things that I struggled with early on was um, 
life isn't fair, right? Yeah. That you, you can come in and work two and three times more and do more than somebody else, right? And when that recognition doesn't come, or if it's not steady, right? Or if it doesn't bring any extra money with it, right? It's sometimes meaningless. Yeah. So in reaching out and connecting with other people, you'll find that uh, lots of folks have been through that struggle, right? Yeah. And lots of folks have have, have taken a step back and said, right, where have I made my mistakes along the way? And what are the changes I need to make? Um, So while you're reading a lot about the industry, I'm dying to ask you, are you reading any books about leadership? No, not a whole lot. No, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and that's... Go ahead. I, mean, I think if I was willing to leave Truro, then there there would be opportunity for me. I, I mean, I've had job offers at quite a few places over the last five years from different mills in Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Who, in having me come work there because knitting machine mechanics aren't easy to come by anymore either especially right. when that enjoy working with the machines but i get my my mom's here and she's old and i'm not going to leave as long as she's alive and even when she's gone i don't know we've built, my wife's settled here we've we've settled here the cost of living is low maybe if the factory closed I would consider it because I've got so much invested now in what I've learned that maybe then the temptation to leave and go somewhere else where I could do similar work would, would be strong. Just depends Uh, how old I am when the factory closes or if, if, if it closes. (laughs) And how how old are you today when Uh, it closes? Let's hope that it doesn't. Yeah. Let's hope that it doesn't. I'm 49. All right. And, and, and I will say uh, they're doing their best to try to stick with the industry. It's quite clear that, that uh, um, it's, it's very competitive business. And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, from my point of view, I, I had no idea who your company was until I knew who you were. All right. So what's that tell you about advertising? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> So my, my son keeps telling me, why don't you put your apply for some positions in social social media marketing? <laughs> it, it doesn't so, matter. And that's a strong thing, right? You can't uh, do anything without a, a piece of paper these days. So, so back to leadership. And uh, when we get done with this, I'll have a, a couple things that uh, that I'll I'll push your way in terms of things I think you might want to read that uh, that made a difference on on who I am today right uh saying out loud i uh took a course from a guy named dr aubrey daniels on performance management and it was really about you know how to interact with people and get the most out of people right and in reality it you know impacts yourself more than it does others uh but it, it helped me understand what's the motivating thing for people right what motivates some people to do less what motivates some people to do more Right. And uh, how do I make changes to that? So it's it was an interesting process that uh, I went through. And then I also took the, the Dale Carnegie course. Uh, that's not how, what got me into doing the social media thing. Initially, what, 
but I told you I went to school and met my wife. I was doing communication. So I did have a little bit of time in front of a microphone, but not much. Uh, so your machines, Tom, and I told you that I wasn't going to stick to that script. So you're not remembering any of it. So I'm going to just go through my own interview. How old are they? Well, I'm trying to think like, no, I don't run the course machines, but I would say the course machines are the oldest and they're probably around 50 years old, I'd think by now at least. Yeah. And my oldest Monarch knitting machine, which is one that I had just the other day, I posted a video of that would probably be 40 years old, I would say. Right. Just off, off the cuff. All right. And the drives on them, are they, are they uh, variable speed drives or are they... The old uh, monarch just has a clutch system on it. You flip okay. it, flip it up, and it goes. It turns off. You flip the clutch down, and it catches, and it starts turning. Now the newer ones all have computer drives on them with variable speed that you can adjust. But it just depends a lot on the on the individual machine and the age of it. And it looks like that most of them operate off a cam system that uh, makes everything go up and down and. Is yeah. it spinning, right? So it, in terms of those, what type of maintenance are you typically doing most of? Is it is it PM type stuff, time-based, or are you doing condition monitoring? We have no system in place for me yeah. at all. There's, I do it as I need it. Uh, I, my current manager now who manages laundry, knitting, and dye house, he, he asks me for my book every couple of months, and then I suppose he inputs into a computer what I've done. But other than that, there's no control on it. I have a good memory, so I trust myself. And like the machines that run every day, I oil them every two days. I never let the oilers go down because just like a gas tank, the lift sure. to the bottom of the tank, and I don't like the oilers to go down. So the machines that are running every day, they're fine. They get their maintenance every day. The, but some of the machines run maybe once a year, maybe once every two years. The other day I started up a machine that hadn't run since 2016, 2017. <laughs> so machine that's sitting there, usually I have the yarn tied off on it and it won't get much really any maintenance. Maybe I might squirt some oil over the needles once in a while, but if it's just sitting there. The other ones, I just keep my eyes on them. Interesting. So, and that was my thought process is they were probably very, because they're so mechanical, very PM oriented. So it would have preventive maintenance. It was either time-based or based on hours, you know, in terms of, all right, when do we need to replace that cam? How do we need to replace the rollers uh, and uh, needles and so on, right? Now the needles, the needles, we do have a book that I write in, but again, I know not everybody's writing in it because I re-needled a machine a month ago, I think. And if I went by the book, it hadn't been re-needled in 15 years. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent positive that machine's been re-needled, but it's not, it wasn't traditionally my alley. So somebody had re-needled re it and just never wrote it in the book. So. All right. So by guesstimate, how often would you say you re-needle a machine? And how many needles are in one? Well, the, well, I'll use the ones we make. We make a two-layer garment for LL Bean. And that's those are the two machines that run 
always when there's yarn. Now we haven't been able to get yarn lately, but when there's yarn, those machines have been running steady since I started working there and they're two 30 inch machines. They'd have two sets of around 1200 needles, 1280 needles, maybe each 1280 in the dial and then 1280 in the cylinder. And if in a normal year where they ran every day for two or three shifts, I would re-needle them once a year and maybe clean them somewhere in between. If I have a slow day, sometimes I'll pull off all the blocks and clean the dirt out of the blocks and put the blocks back on. But re-needle, clean and re-needle once a year. Interesting stuff. So uh, I told you at some point I'm going to come up and, and visit the crazy underwear factory. Uh, I look forward to doing that now that we have a, a border open, but I will say it will probably be in nicer weather. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've also been reading uh, recently about, uh, you know, we all have a gift and I, I think uh, it, it took me 20 years to figure out what my gift was. And then I've been doing that gift for over 20 and, and uh, the advice of this person was, before you decide to uh, just do nothing, start giving it away. So I'd be more than happy to go up and, and uh, talk with your bosses and give them some advice on what I think a good maintenance plan might be. Right. And that's usually based on how does a good maintenance plan come about by talking with your people. Yeah, that would be a great. Right? They know, right. The people know it's really, put those words to paper and, and uh, developing that. So Tom, it has been uh, very interesting as I expected to talk to you today. How are things with your family, by the way? Everybody's fine. My son just finished his master's degree. All right. Took it at the University of Toronto from our basement and he just finished it. So now he's busy looking for work. He just had right. it today. So a master's in what? Anthropology. Oh, wow. And he applied at a bank and the other one's a financial institution too. I guess they study us to see our spending habits and our banking habits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, as I said, it's been nice talking to you, Tom. I look forward to speaking again sometime in the near future. And uh, as I said, I'll correspond with you and a couple of recommendations, things I think you might find interesting to read. By the way, folks, Tom also does, uh, he dabbles in writing on the side. So that's another thing that we have in common. We're both, both dabble with uh, a little bit of fiction work, which is, uh, it's one of the things I find to be relaxing. So yeah, it's, it's a new experience that is, but yeah. And I, I'll, I'll also tell you, Tom, that uh, my, my friends from high school, when they find that out, they're like, first it's you publish two books. What? Who? You did? What are you kidding me? Right. And then I tell him, yeah, I write all the time. So I hated writing in high school. <laughs> Same here. Well, it's been good to talk to you, Tom. Really good to meet you. All right. Have a great day, my friend. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Connection. We will see you back for another episode next week. In between, we hope to see you in the Mobius Connect community where you can meet Doug and share with other industry professionals at MobiusConnect.com. We'll see you there. 